Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us gathered in this hour together. I'm going to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to two places, two very short passages, but the first comes from Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 16. Genesis 35, verse 16. And the second is in Psalms. It's Psalm 34, verse 18. Genesis 35, verse 16. And Psalm 34, verse 18. Hear these words. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. And then from Psalm 35 or 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and lifts up those crushed in spirit. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and the receiving, the embracing of His holy word. Would you pray with me? God, in this moment, we recognize that we come from a thousand different directions in this hour, this moment, this room, this space. And with those many directions, we bring with us every kind of load, every measure that is burdening to the heart, to the mind. We carry with us, wherever we go, our own suffering and the awareness of the suffering of others. So in this hour, as we attempt to seek some wisdom from Your Word, we pray that just for a little while, You may be able to relieve from the shoulders of Your worshipers any burden that would keep them from hearing the good news set your servants at peace for a while that our heads may be lifted we pray these things in the name of christ the lord of life amen in the late 1960s some of you remember those days there was a discovery made in a cave in the northern region of Iraq. Archaeologists had come across a grave site 
that was the oldest gravesite ever discovered, 50,000 year, years old. It was a gravesite of Neanderthal people. And what was interesting about this particular gravesite was what they found adorning the gravesite. There were like seeds, pollen seeds from various kinds of flowers like hollyhocks and different thistles and giving evidence of deliberately having laid flowers at the graves of these Neanderthal people. Let that sit with you for just a moment. Neanderthal, right? I know some of us think we have some Neanderthal in our families, but I'm talking the real Neanderthal. Flowers upon the graves of those who were lost. Thousands of miles away, just outside of Moscow, another discovery was made. 30,000-year-old graves of Cro-Magnon people. Cro-Magnon people. A, a man was found there with a, a necklace, a beaded necklace of hand-carved ivory. There, in that site, there was a woman's skull stacked on top of a man's skull and two small children's skulls, and around it, decorated, were rings, bracelets, a spear, a dagger, tools, and even, and even teeth from a fox to decorate the place. And that discovery, as I think about that, provokes something in me. Do you realize that from the earliest days of our journey as human beings, one thing that has unified all of us is that we know from the earliest days what it means to have something and lose it. We know what it feels like to, to have loved something and have to let it go. We know something about grief. I want to talk for just a moment or two today about the journey of the experience of grief in the human saga. Because I look, I look around and in the faces of people I see every day, you see it too. We are living in a grief-gripped world. A grief-gripped world. And we may not think that we are grieving. Well, that's just the guy who, who can't get happy. He's angry at everybody. He's just constantly moody. Or she, she's just so low. She's a drag. She brings everybody down. Don't know why. We walk around with the symptoms of our grief, and we don't know that we are grieving, but we are. Do, do you know that in the last two years, 63 Johns Creek Baptist Church members died? 63 of us in the past two years have gone to be with the Lord. That's 63 individuals who are in your Sunday school communities and your Bible studies and your life groups together, your lunch gang, the friends with whom you do life. And that's not even counting the number of people in your own families who live far away who may have been lost, who may have died. Uncles, aunts, cousins, grandparents, parents, children. And we carry with us everywhere we go this kind of grief, whether we can name it or not. We carry it heavy in our chests because you can grieve about things that you don't think are grieve-worthy because any kind of change that you go through in life is a, is a subject for grief. 
Even good news, good change that comes to her. So you have a baby. That's good news. But it's also the beginning of a kind of grief because you lose a particular season of your freedom. So you, you walk your daughter down the aisle. And that's a good occasion. That's a happy occasion. But at the same time that you're shedding tears of joy, you realize there's also a kind of grief underway because now this is in every real way the death of a particular season in your life that will never be there again. You can look forward to retirement all you want. And you'll have the party and you'll eat the cake and they'll give you like a, you know, an engraved pen and say thank you for the years of service. And you've been looking forward to this for a long time, but at the same time, every friend who I know who has navigated the, 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 the course of, of retirement has said to me that there is also a kind of struggle. Because how in the world am I supposed to be valued or appreciated if, if I'm not doing something to earn that value? So we grieve. We grieve at every turn, every change in our road every turn in our road sorry my mechanics are coming undone right before you yeah okay we grieve when production equipment <laughs> fails usually due to operator error but we grieve at every occasion listen in the last two years so many have lost so much so fast that we walk around carrying within us grief. Are you a school teacher? Does school feel different post-COVID than it ever did before? All of my educators should say amen right about now. Yeah. Are, are you a nurse? Are you in healthcare? Are you hanging on by a very thin thread with an exhausted body, mind, and soul? Does it feel like something that used to bring so much life and joy has died? Yeah. And, and, and in our shared life over the last two, four, six, nine years, we've all experienced the death of some other things, the death of social trust, the death of what information is reliable, the death of civil conversations about issues with whom you degree, you, persons that you disagree with. And we mourn, we grieve. Yeah. So today, I want to talk about grief, but I want to launch it with the question, what have you lost lately? What do you grieve because I believe that there is someone listening today who is struggling because for whatever reason, you may feel stuck in your sorrow. You can't seem to get forward because of something that you've lost. And until we name the thing that we are grieving, we cannot live fully free from it. And this sermon series has been about attempting to be human in the way that Jesus, our model, our example, our Lord and Savior, has demonstrated how to be human. The truly human one has shown us and he has said to us what has become our theme verse. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And in this conversation, the thief that I'm talking about is sometimes our grief to steal, kill, and destroy that fullness of life that we are meant to enjoy. So I want to talk about that, hoping to reach into one of your hearts today 
and lift somebody's head. But to do that, we've got to talk about a couple of things. We've got to talk about stages, styles, and how to get unstuck. We're going to talk about stages, styles, and how to get unstuck. First, stages. So it's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who first popularized the idea that that when we grieve, we go through a, a kind of predictable, recognizable, observable movement in our grief. Five stages that have been identified, and they sound something like this. We begin with denial, which moves to anger, which moves to what's called bargaining, then it moves to depression, and then ultimately to a a kind of acceptance. And it doesn't happen as cleanly as I just described it. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So first, denial. When the thing happens, no matter what the thing is, you lose the, lose the loved one, you change jobs, you, you, you go through the divorce, the kids move away, whatever the thing is that is the source of your grieving, of your loss, at first there's kind of a denial. This can't be happening. This isn't real. And it comes with a kind of numbness or a, what we call a flat affect where you just kind of walk through life and sometimes it seems like those who are in denial like in a semi-catatonic state. I mean, they, I think of Job. Do you remember the story of Job in the prologue of Job? He has everything right. His life is perfect. And the servant comes to him and he says to Job, my Lord, the, the oxen were plowing and the, the donkeys were, were, were grazing and, and we were attacked and they were all stolen and they killed all the servants and I alone am the one who escaped to come and tell you. And while he was still speaking, another servant came up and said, My Lord, the fire from above, the Lord's fire came down and consumed all the sheep and all the servants died with it. And I alone am the one to escape and let you know. And while he's still speaking, another comes and says, The Chaldeans formed three columns against your servants, killed every one of them. I'm the only one left. And while he's still speaking, another comes forward and says, My Lord, the kids, you, your sons and your daughters, they were, they were eating and drinking and celebrating life and and this wind came in, and the roof on the building collapsed, and they didn't make it. They're all dead. Job falls to his knees. He begins to worship, but then it gets even more complicated. He is this disease that covers his skin, and he sits there for the first two chapters of the book of Job on the ash heap of sorrow silently scraping his sores from shards of clay that he finds on the ash heap, silently suffering in shock. Do you know somebody? Are you the somebody who has lost something so grave you still to this day cannot believe that it has happened? To you I say, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and lifts up those who are crushed in spirit. Yes. But then we move out of our denial and eventually we move into anger. And we have all this rage because rage and anger comes from a place where all your passion lives. And now you're angry at everybody. 
You're angry at the doctors. You're angry at the system, at the insurance company. You're angry at cancer. You're angry even possibly at the deceased. Well, how can you be angry at the deceased? Well, if he had taken care of himself better or if he had left me in better financial shape, I wouldn't be in the mess that I'm in now or whatever it is that you've lost. There is a rage that can swell up within you and you project that anger in every which way. I think of Martha. Her brother dies. Jesus comes, but he's too late. And Martha meets him on the road. If you had just come sooner, he would still be alive as if the ones you're angry at could have prevented it at all. Let's do a social experiment here for just a moment. In the last two years, through quarantine, through masking, through the social distancing, through all the events of the last two years, I'm just curious, has, did anybody during those last two years ever meet anyone who was angry? Okay, you too? All right, yeah, right? And yet, I want you to think about this reality for a moment. At the height of the quarantine, I mean, like back when we were doing like, like wearing masks by ourselves in the car, you know, back during that, and, and everybody doesn't know where the thing's going and what, what it's all about. In the midst of that, at the same time, the racial tensions rose and there were protests and counter-protests. And at the same time, there was political unrest and a presidential election that got nastier and nastier by the minute. And all of that anger that we saw, all of that spewing of, of vitriol and hatred, we just assumed it's because we disagree with the other folks. But we didn't take time to think of the possibility that we're all grieving. Every one of us losing something. And we target all of that anger in places that don't deserve it. See, if you are angry today and, and you've lost something and you know what it was, but you, you just don't know what to do with how angry you feel day in and day out, my word to you is simple. It is this. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and lifts up those who are crushed in spirit. So tell Him. Let Him know. Rage. Anguish. Lament because he can take it. But we move not just from denial into anger. We also move into what's called bargaining, which is really just a, another way of saying in interior dialogue. The things that you say to yourself when you've lost the thing, lost the person, the divorce is final, the job is over, retirement is settled in, and the inner dialogue of bargaining. I could have done... What I should have done is... I think, of, I think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're walking so defeated because they had seen their Lord crucified, and they don't know that the person walking alongside them is the risen Lord, and they're shuffling, telling the whole story to Jesus about what happened to Jesus. And there's this curious phrase. It's the most profound, heavy, they said to him, and to beat it all, we had hope that he would be the one we had hoped. When you grieve and you are in the stage of bargaining or inside the inner dialogue of what you lost or who you lost, sometimes it can be summarized by using the very same words, I had hoped that the last treatment would have worked. I had hoped that I, I should have said the thing that I didn't say, or maybe I shouldn't have said the thing that I did say, as if almost you assume you can undo the thing 
Like if you work it out in here, you can somehow reverse the thing that you lost. But it's part of the journey of grief. And if you are in the bargaining stage and you're asking questions that you can't even answer yourself, I'm here to say to you, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and lifts up those who are crushed in spirit. But then we move into an area called depression. And I'm not just talking about general clinical depression. Sometimes we need real help and and real medicine and real professionals to help us through clinical depression. But when you lose someone, everyone at some point or another experiences a pointed, poignant, acute sadness. An awareness of the thing that is gone and will not come back. And that, that depth of sorrow can sometimes come with what we call stabbing memories. Because you know that she's gone. You know the thing is over. And yet, in the morning for the briefest of moments, you might wake up and forget for a split second that it has happened. And you reach over to touch her and she's not there. Or you come home at the end of a long day, you open the door, and because the muscle memory of your routine for years has been, I'm home. A stabbing memory that they're not. And in that depression, I think of all that is in the the pages of this sacred book where people lament and they put language to their sadness and they cry out, why, O Lord? And how long, O Lord? And along the way, there's there's a company that we feel. A company with those who have lost before us. And to you who may be depressed right now, I say to you, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and lifts up those who are crushed in spirit yes but then ultimately we're told the people who study us tell us that after we go through denial and a bout of anger and then we go through a season in which we bargain then through our depression we come to the last stage which is called acceptance and you make it through lunch one day and realize that you didn't cry yourself through it and and then the sun sets and you realize it will rise tomorrow. And, and, and in the season of accepting, gradually you become aware of the truth that was spoken by so many other people, but now you know it to be your reality that you don't get over it, but you do get through it. And I say to you who are just now beginning to see the sun rise again, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He lifts up those who are crushed in spirit. Yeah. So we go through various stages of grief, but the problem is they're not that clean. It's not that predictable. You don't go through your denial and say, okay, I think I've been here long enough. I'm going to check out some anger for a few days. Then I check that box and I move on. I think I'll ask some hard questions. You don't. It's not as clean as that. Sometimes you're filled with depression that circles back around to anger, and then you're angry for a long time. I just can't seem to feel right about it anymore. And then you are shocked once more, and then you move gradually to acceptance. It's like standing on the beach. That's what grief is. You stand on the beach, and you can no more control your grief 
And when it comes, and when it leaves, then you can control the tide. The tide will ebb and the tide will flow. And the greatest hope we have is that we can learn to ride the wave of our grief because there is one who showed us he walks on the waves. There is one who showed us that he can put his hand over the tumultuous wave and say, peace be still. That's it. We move through stages, but by God's grace, we don't move through them alone. Which leads us to not just talking about the stages we experience, but also the styles of grief. You know, we have different styles of grief. We don't all grieve the same way, and it's important to be aware of that when you are loving someone who is grieving. Some of us experience what's called anticipatory grief. That means we see the thing is coming. Maybe the treatments have been underway for months or even years, and we know that it's coming, and so it comes, and then the funeral is here, and because you grieved along the way, she seems so calm at this funeral. Yeah. If you've loved someone through Alzheimer's for a decade, from the very first time they look at you and say, now who are you again? Until the time they go on to be with the Lord, you begin the grieving process so early that by the time you stand by the grave, you've done it. You've grieved. You've anticipated what is coming and already lived in it. Others are not anticipatory grievers. Others are delayed grievers. They're the ones who know the thing is coming. The the death may be coming. The children may be launching and moving away. The the, the daughter may be getting married and things are going to change. But listen, there's too much to do right now to think about it. we got invitations to fill out. we got venues to reserve. right? we got a graduation party to plan. And we get all the way through the event. And on the other side of the event, and everybody says, wow, they're really handling this well. She's so strong. Her father died? And did you see how in control she was at the funeral? Steady as a rock. Yeah, yeah. Then nine months later, the family cat dies, and she falls apart. Not because she loved the cat more than daddy, but because all of it had been on hold. See, we are... We are complex creatures, human beings. We don't all grieve the same. We give each other the grace and the space of grieving in different paces and in different ways. Just so you know, some anticipate, some delay. I do it all. I mean, you know that your pastor is a deeply feeling pastor. And so I see it coming, and I don't know if I'm a mess, and then I go through it, and then I'm a mess, and then I go to the other side of it for a few months, and I'm a mess. It's all right. Because when you are a mess, there is one who is near the brokenhearted. One who lifts up those who are crushed in spirit. But what we must be mindful of, church, is when someone we love experiences not anticipatory grief or delayed grief, but arrested grief. Arrested grief means you get in one of the stages of grief and you can't get out. You are stuck in your sorrow. And no matter what stage it is, I can't stop being angry at Him. Or I can't stop feeling so low. And when we experience arrested grief, that's sometimes where real help is needed. Where the community of believers, the resurrected body of Christ pays attention and comes alongside and helps love them through. And at the same time, it may mean that you need some trained professional help getting you through. And that's fine. 
But when we get stuck, a strange thing happens to us. We're robbed of the very life that Jesus came to bring to its fullness. Which leads us not just through the stages and the styles of grief, it leads us to how to get unstuck. Now the one verse I read from Genesis a moment ago, or the, the, the couple of verses from Genesis, were about Rachel. You remember Rachel. Rachel is married to Jacob, and Rachel is the love of his life. He loves Rachel so deeply. Remember, he worked as a servant for 14 years to earn the right to marry Rachel. He loves Rachel, and she's dying. She's giving birth, and as she gives birth, the midwife says to her, don't fear, it's a boy. And in her dying breath, she says, name him Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni is a curious name. The word Ben means son, son of. Oni is curious. It has a couple of meanings. The most obvious meaning in this context, which most would agree, is translated this way. Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. Because she will die in her sorrow. She knows in that moment she will never see him take his first step or speak his first word. She'll never nurse him, never heal his hurts. He'll, she'll never be able to see him grow and fall in love and start a family. And in her sorrow, she is stuck and dies in her sorrow. And she's known throughout the ages as the weeping matriarch. Several years later, when the people are driven by the Babylonians into exile, away from their holy city, they pass by where Rachel is buried. And you know how Jeremiah describes that haunting moment? He says it this way. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. She represents to the people of Israel the one who is stuck in her sorrow and everything that will ever happen to her descendants. She continues to weep and her weeping can be heard. And it's this verse where that awful story in the, in the Gospel of Matthew takes place where Herod comes and kills all of the young boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area looking to try to kill the toddler Jesus and the Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, it says, loud lamentation was heard, Rachel weeping for her children, for they will not, she will not be comforted because they are no more. Do you know anyone stuck in their sorrow? Anyone for whom they can't seem to get unstuck from a place where they are grieving? It's interesting to me because in her dying breath, Rachel, the sorrow-filled woman, the weeping mother, names her child, son of my weeping, son of my sorrow. Isn't it interesting that we who sometimes get stuck in our sorrow have the capacity to only produce sorrow? Those who are stuck in grief see life through the lens of grief and what we birth is more grief. And she was going to name this boy Sorrow so that the rest of his life 
he lives with a reminder of what was lost. But it's interesting to me because Ben-Oni doesn't simply mean son of my sorrow. I told you there's another meaning. It's son of my sorrow, yes, to be sure, but there's another translation, son of my strength. And isn't that interesting? That the same word can mean what seems to be two opposite meanings, sorrow and strength. That sorrow and strength can coexist. And more than that, I would even say to you today as we're talking about how to be human and how to grieve like a human, I would say that there is some kind of strength that only comes and only is born from sorrow. There are some kinds of strength that are only born through our sorrow, through what we have lost. You see, resurrection only comes when something first has died. And you and I will all ultimately die. But before we die, there are deaths before we die. Jesus said, unless you're willing to lay down your life and lose your life, you'll never know what it means to actually find it. You see, strength sometimes comes from sorrow. What we have lost is only the beginning of what we will gain. And the greatest example I can think of is Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Man. And you and I think of Jesus as victorious, as the resurrected one, and He is. But as He hangs on the cross, keep in mind that strength, you don't take my life, I give my life. The strength that made Him overcome the cross was born of suffering. Which is why when Isaiah describes Jesus, he calls Him the suffering servant. He he refers to Him this way. He says in Isaiah, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I am suggesting to you today that if you find yourself in a place where you only feel sorrow, where you seem to be stuck in your sorrow, gripped by your own grief, and you assume that this is how your story ends, I am saying to you that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a musician, a songwriter, very influential in the jazz world, blues world. A third of what he wrote were gospels, gospel songs. He's also an evangelist, and he was on Revival in one city far away from his home. He gets a telegram. He's eager to get home because his wife is expecting the child. She's to give birth at any moment. She's the love of his life. The telegram says, get home now. Nettie has died. He gets home as soon as he can. He walks in and the house is filled with grievers. Nettie's dead. Nettie's dead. Don't know how it happened, but Nettie's dead. And the baby somehow survived birth, but died within 24 hours. And he walks out and falls to his knees. And he begins to pray, Lord. Lord. And a friend of his comes and whispers in his ear, That's not his name. He said, Lord, that's not his name. 
What's his name? His name is Precious Lord. And in that moment, on that ground, Tommy Dorsey wrote and sang as a prayer. Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me on. Help me stand because I'm tired and I'm weak and I'm worn through the storm through the night lead me on to your light precious Lord take my hand and lead me home. Beloved, if you are stuck in your sorrow, I want you to know that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He lifts up those crushed in spirit, and you know how He lifts it up? With His hand. And all you and I must do is allow Him, in God's good timing, to lift us out of our denial, lift us up out of our anger, to lift us through our bargaining and our depression until that good day when we recognize that everything we have suffered, every cross we have borne has been on the way to resurrection. And if today you're in that place and you are longing for that kind of company, the kind of company who will lift you up by his precious hand. 